0: Morning, everybody. Have a good Christmas. I had a great Christmas. Uh, Christmas actually came early for me. Uh, came early on Monday night. Um, there was this kind of this great picture of David and Goliath um, that we got to see uh, nationally televised. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this little weak shepherd boy who has spent five years and 11 games getting just destroyed just took it to Goliath. And it was great. It was pretty wonderful. And we can talk more about that later if you want, um, which I'm going to probably talk about it till next season. So. But anyway, that's not what today is about. Um, today is about looking back at Christmas and the Christmas story um, in the Bible, there are many passages about Christmas. Um, many, many passages. Those we know, and and those that maybe we don't always associate with the Christmas story. But they kind of fall into two categories. And the first category is like we saw last week in Malachi, looking forward to the birth of Christ and what that means and what it will mean when it happens. And then you have Christmas passages that are looking behind or looking back after Christmas has happened and trying to understand what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Christ was born? So last week we looked ahead in Malachi last Sunday, and this week I want to look back from Psalm 125. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 125. There's a valuable Christmas lesson in Psalm 125. It might not jump right out at you as a Christmas Christmas passage. Maybe you've never thought to look here when you're looking for a Christmas passage. But as I was looking through the daily Bible reading that we are continuing to do, um, I came across this psalm, and I thought I I just didn't want to pass it up. Uh, I, I wanted to explore the Christmas meaning in Psalm 125. So it's only five verses, but I've got to divide it into three sections. And that's how we're going to kind of look at it. But the first section is verses 1 through 3. And I'm calling this a section, this is a truth. We learn a truth from the Lord in Psalm 125, verses 1 through 3. The second section is Psalm is a verses 4 through 5. And this is a prayer for that truth. A prayer for that truth to go out into the world. We're going to look at that. And then at the very end, there's kind of this epilogue. It's not a separate verse, but there's a divide, uh, and there's this one phrase at the very end of Psalm 125. And this is what I'm calling the promise of that truth that we learned about earlier. And that's where we're going to tie this into Christmas. At the end of Psalm 125, it says, Peace... Be upon Israel. When this psalm was written, most likely when this psalm was written, it was during the time of Nehemiah. We're going to look at what that has to do with this in a minute. But during the time of Nehemiah, it was kind of chaotic. There was a lot of uncertainty. And again, we'll get into that. But I just want you to keep in mind that when the people of Israel heard this psalm read, they were in the midst of strife in their own nation. And at the very end, the psalmist says, peace be upon Israel. But that's at the end. I don't want to get there yet. um, But I just want to kind of whet your appetite for that. So back to the first section, verses 1 through 3. This is a truth that the Lord wants us to understand. It starts out this way, those who trust in the Lord. So right off the bat, the Lord is dividing us into different camps. Either trust in the Lord or you don't trust in the Lord. And this truth is for those who trust in the Lord. During Christmas time, we, uh, of course, want to encourage people to put their trust in the Lord. At Christmas time, we talk about the coming of Christ, and it's not just that he was born, but that he was born to die. And why was he born to die? Because of sin and the need for a perfect sacrifice to cleanse our sin from our lives, and to bring us into relationship with Christ. So when we are celebrating Christmas for Christians, we want people to trust in the Lord. And here's a truth about those who trust in the Lord. They are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Throughout the Bible, the theology of Zion... um, Is is interesting. It it, it starts out the first time you ever read about Zion or see that name Zion. It's in regards to David, and David conquered this city of uh, uh, this city, and they named it Zion, David's city. And so that's where you first learn about this idea. And as time goes on, and as you continue to read through the Scripture, you realize that Zion comes to mean many different things, but there's always a similar theme. When, anybody in the reference, or when anyone in the Bible references Zion. So it started out as a city of David, and maybe you've heard it called that before. Um, another, another term for Zion, a synonym for Zion, is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, the place where the Lord is, the place where the Lord's king is, the city of God. Zion becomes known as the nation of Israel. It's synonymous with the nation of Israel. It's synonymous with the people of of God, so when you see Zion in Psalms, and you see anyone else talking about Zion, you're supposed to understand that they're talking about the people of the Lord, the place where God is, and God is with His people. In Psalm 48, um, which is a, a similar psalm, kind of a sister psalm to this one, I just want to read to you a description of Zion. Now, this is poetry, so um, it's just supposed to give you an idea of what this kind of this place. Is like. Psalm 48 in verse 12, it says this: Walk about Zion, go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, which are defensive walls, consider her palaces, that you might tell it to the generations following. For this is God, our God forever and ever, he will be our guide, even to death. Zion is this massive place of safety. That is has many, multiple palaces, it has multiple defensive walls, multiple towers. It's a place where if you are trusting in the Lord, you can go for rest and for peace. When you're in Zion, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about what's going on around you because you're safe. And so because that's true, the psalmist can say, if you trust in the Lord, you're like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. It's a stable place that is everlasting. Now, it's interesting. He says Mount Zion, which is kind of even more information than just Zion. Mount Zion. Um, when you see references to that phrase to the rest of Scripture, the idea is here that it's also talking about God's house again, the temple, the place where God dwells. God asked His people Israel to build Him a magnificent house, so that they could go there and they could see. Now, of course. God doesn't just live in one place, he's everywhere, right? But he gave them a picture, a place for them to go to realize that they are meeting with the Lord, a holy set-apart place. And that's where he wants his people, those who trust him, are in Mount Zion. And they're not just in Mount Zion, they're like Mount Zion. The temple of the Lord, the home of the Lord, th- the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But that's not the real home of the Lord, right? That was a representation of God being with his people, of a place for God and his people to meet each other. But the house of the Lord, Zion, can never be destroyed, can never be overthrown. Rome has no power over that. No empire has power over the house of the Lord. And that's a promise that God makes here in Psalm 125. And it's a truth, he says, Mount Zion can never be moved and it abides forever. If you trust in the Lord, you cannot be moved and you abide forever. But, He even goes on further than that, which is amazing. In verse 2, he says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the city of Jerusalem was in a strategic area where there was pretty much one main way to get in, and it was surrounded by all these mountains. Now, the nation of Israel was always kind of the younger brother, the little kid on the block. They never were really the ultimate power no matter what time period it was, although in David and Solomon's time, the kingdom was at, its, at the height of its power. But Israel was always the smaller nation, and, and their main city, though, was hard to take. It was not easy to take Jerusalem because of the mountains surrounding it. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. If you trust in the Lord, you're like Mount Zion. You can't be moved. You're like the house of God. If you trust in the Lord, the Lord promises to surround you like the mountains around Jerusalem, to protect you, to keep you safe, not just for a few minutes, not just for a few years, not just for a few generations, but from this time forth and forever. Zion could never be moved. It stands forever. The house of the Lord stands forever. And God surrounds and cares for his people forever. And he never not, for one second, would stop surrounding you and protecting you. That is a truth that we're supposed to learn from Psalm 125. And then he goes, and, and, and in this Psalm, verse 3 is kind of this, this is where we get this idea of um, well, where it's, when it's taking place, I guess I should say. In verse 3, it says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. So it's kind of this interesting verse here, but this clues us into what's going on in the nation of Israel. Like I said, this is probably during the time of Nehemiah. And if you know the time of Nehemiah, you know that the Israelites have just come from um, the Babylonian captivity. And Jerusalem had been destroyed. Their nation had been destroyed because of their sin. And Babylon had taken them. So Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Nehemiah and these guys are now coming back. Israel is being sent back by Persia to repopulate their land. And Nehemiah's job is to help build the city back up. And they're working on the wall. And they've got to get the walls built for safety because it's just an open city that anybody could come attack. So that is what Israel is supposed to do. But if you read through Nehemiah, especially in Nehemiah chapter 5, you realize that it's not easy. They get a lot of work done really quickly. But just like Israel usually does, after things go well for a while, then they start to fall back to their old ways. And there is division. And Nehemiah is um, not sure that everything's going to turn out all right because of the problems and the sin within Israel that keep rearing its ugly head. But the psalmist says in verse 3, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. What he's saying is it's not hopeless, Nehemiah. It's not hopeless, Israel. It's not hopeless, people of God. It's not hopeless, Mount Zion. Yes, things that we deal with in this life, the sin and the evil and the brokenness that we deal with that causes us to suffer and causes us to be in stressful situations and causes divisions among us, those things are real and they are trying to attack us at all times, but the people of God will abide forever and the Lord will make sure that his people continue on. Something that Nehemiah realizes is that even though the work that he's doing seems hopeless, that there is a purpose by God in what's, being, what's happening. If n- nothing for the very fact that Nehemiah was chosen by God to lead these people. And Nehemiah, if you read, again, if you read through the book, you know that from the beginning to end, he is always about honoring the Lord. And so the Lord um, was gracious and merciful to the people of Israel by giving them the leader of Nehemiah. Despite Persia, despite the captivity that they went through, God brought his people home, and he was going to sustain them. He'd made that promise. He said, even though you'll be taken away, even though things will be destroyed, I will bring you back, there will be a remnant, and I will restore Israel. And the Lord was making that happen. Because the scepter of wickedness, according to the Lord, will not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That means that evil will not overcome what is given to the righteous. So that's the truth that we learn in verses 1 through 3. And then we see a prayer that's made about this truth in verses 4 and 5. And this is how I know that the psalmist is writing to those who trust in God and those who don't. Because he explains that right here. In verse 4 he says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. If you had to decide if you wanted the Lord to do good or not to you, what would you decide? What would you choose? Would you not want the Lord to do good to you? That's what the psalmist is asking, and that, of course, is what we know God will do. God will do good to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. The good here doesn't mean that you have to do enough good things And the Lord will do good to you. The good here is tied, and we're going to see this in a minute, is tied to Christmas and tied to Jesus Christ and His coming. The good are the people who trust in the Lord. Though we do it imperfectly, though we do it, um, though it looks messy in our lives and we're not um, continually honoring the Lord in our hearts at at every moment. The Lord will do good to those who trust in him and those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. So here's where we really get into this. If you trust God, God does good to you, will do good to you, will keep you, will surround you, will abide with you forever. But if you choose to not trust in the Lord... If you turn aside to your own crooked ways, to the sin in your heart, to be ruled by that, the Lord shall lead you away with the workers of iniquity. This is a prayer, but it's also a promise. This is what will happen to those who trust in the Lord and those who choose to not trust in the Lord. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how will the Lord be working in your life? In John 12, 26, Jesus says that God will honor his servants. Usually when I pray up here, I like to um, acknowledge the fact that the Lord promises to draw near to us if we draw near to him. We don't just have to throw out our prayer, throw out our trust, and hope that it lands somewhere. But God says, if you honor me, I will honor you. And Jesus himself said, God hears and honors his servants. So that's why I say this is a promise. It's it's not just a prayer that Lord, please do good to those who trust you, but He also knows that God will do good to those who trust you. And how will you? How will the Lord be working in your life? That's the question we need to ask ourselves when we see these truths and we hear these prayers. What's interesting? This is kind of um, verse four and five is kind of the gospel in in two phrases. We're we're talking about the gospel here. The Lord does good to his people, and the only way to be uh, one of his people is to trust in him. And the only way to trust in him is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and your faith in what he's done. But we can't even get that far if Christmas never happened. So we have to understand how important Christmas really is to our lives, to our well-being, to our relationship with God. And again, in the gospel, you have the good news and you have the bad news, and the bad news in verse 5 is that if you don't put your trust in the Lord, if you give in to your sin and let that rule your life, then you will be led away like the workers of iniquity. And we know what that means, that you will be set, we will be separated from God. And I don't think anybody truly would want that. So then there's this final phrase, peace be upon Israel, after he's told us what it means to trust in God and given us that promise and explained what that means, how God views you and what he will do for you if you trust in him. We have seen in history that in that very moment, in the very moment of Israel's life when this psalm was written, that the Lord was still working. And even though things seemed bad or that they weren't going to work out, that God was still involved. His hand was still over everything and he had a plan and it was being worked out. And we've also seen what happens if we choose not to trust in the Lord. And he ends it all by saying, peace be upon Israel. And this is where I think we have permission to make this a Christmas passage. Because the idea of peace is so integral to Christmas, that we can't help but see the Christmas story here. So I'm going to turn to Isaiah. You can turn there if you'd like, but two passages in Isaiah. Now these are famous Christmas passages. You're going to recognize them right away. But here's what it means. Here's how the Lord can say, peace be upon Israel, from these two passages. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says this, in the middle of another terrible moment in Israel's history where things just look like they're going to go south. Um, there's a there's a promise made. I'm sorry, I'm going to go to uh, Isaiah 11 first. There's a promise made, a son who will be born, one who's going to come and bring God to the people. And here's a description of him in, in Isaiah 11, starting in verse 6. Actually, you know, you know what? I'm going to go to verse 9. I'm going to go to chapter 9. I was right. um, 9, I'll start in verse 6. Sorry. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Part of the description of the coming child, the Messiah, who Israelites were always looking for, part of his description is he's the prince of peace, and that he brings a government a ruling, a kingdom of peace. And there won't be any end to that peace. And then in Isaiah 11, now you can turn there if you'd like, starting in verse 6, we get an idea of what it looks like, of what the peace upon Israel will look like one day when it's fully fulfilled in the work of Jesus. It's going to look like this. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion And the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters, as the waters cover the sea. These natural enemies won't be natural enemies anymore because being an enemy won't be natural to anything. That is peace like we don't even understand and almost can't comprehend yet. But Christmas points us to what's coming. When we look at Christmas and when we put our faith in the work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at Christmas... And at Easter, we get a taste of the peace that's to come, but it's yet to be fully realized. And one day, it will be fully realized. This peace, we will understand what it means for there to be no enmity or strife between anyone. And if you trust in the Lord, you can taste that now, and you can put your trust and faith in that the fullness is coming later. Because those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Something interesting about Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, is that it was on a hill. But it was on a hill that was lower than all the mountains surrounding it. So it wasn't in any danger of ever being shaken, of ever being outside of the protection of those mountains. I hadn't come up with a title yet for today's sermon, but... After I got done, I thought, this is perfect. It's kind of, I think it's the title of a song, um, so I can't claim that it's my own. But I think Psalm 125 proves to us that the people of God, those who trust in the Lord, because of Christmas, cannot be shaken. And in a world that's trying to shake you, in a world that's trying to crush you, in a world that's trying to overcome you and get you to, Um, focus on the brokenness and the evil and everything else except the Lord. Don't forget that if you trust in God, you can't be moved. You'll abide forever. And the Lord promises to surround you at all times forever. And that God is doing a good work in your lives, in the lives of the church, in the lives of Christians all over this world. God is doing a good work, and it won't be stopped. And so we can have the peace of Christmas in our lives now and fully realized in the time to come. If you trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. And again, the opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here who's listening, if they have not put their trust in you, Father, that they would do so right now, that they would instantly taste the peace of Christ and be looking forward to the full, complete peace that he will bring the kingdom of the Lord in the end. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you that we can celebrate, that we know that Jesus came, that it wasn't hidden, and it wasn't quiet, but it was a loud and joyous occasion. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue now past Christmas, that we can remind people, remind ourselves and remind others of the peace that Christmas brings, and the peace of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you abide with us, that you will never leave us, that we cannot be moved or shaken if we are found in you. We love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.